Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today we are watching a very 1980s movie about the 1980s, which definitely doesn't have any relevance at all to our own contemporary moment. The Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda team-up workplace revenge comedy, 9 to 5. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam and our guest Sarah Gaventa how 9 to 5 might help us think about life in the church and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're all going to discuss how 9 to 5 might help us understand the lectionary passages for the second Sunday in Lent, March 8th. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll, Matt and I will take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. Before we get too far, let me introduce our guest this morning. She lost a bet and therefore has to appear on this show. <laughs> the Reverend Sarah Gaventa is an ordained Episcopal priest currently serving as Dean of Students at Austin Presbyterian Seminary. She is the co-author of Grandpa's Tent, a children's book helping to navigate questions of grief and loss. And in her spare time, she is married to me. Sarah, in all seriousness, thank you for taking the time to join us this morning so that Adam and I can explain workplace patriarchy to you. <laughs> I cannot think of two men I'd rather have mansplained to me. Thanks so much for having me. So here in 2020, Dolly Parton is having a bit of a moment. She's the subject of a high-profile new long-form podcast. She's the subject of a new high-profile Netflix documentary. And here on the show, we thought it would be worth going back and connecting with her breakout cinematic role, this slightly bizarre 1980 workplace comedy called 9 to 5. You probably know the song. It plays over the opening credits. The movie gets stranger from there. Dolly stars alongside Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda as three women struggling to get by in a very bland, very corporate, and very patriarchal office in some unnamed industry in some unnamed city. The opening of this film pulls no punches about the toxicity that women in the workplace can face. They are ignored, abused, passed over, and underpaid just for a start. And eventually they break, and what follows is a sort of fantastical, farcical, screwball revenge comedy where all of their well-earned rage against the machine, and particularly against their boss, Mr. Hart, is played out in very tangible ways. As odd as this movie can feel, it made bank. It was the number two grossing picture here in the States in 1980, a distant second only to Empire Strikes Back. Clearly, this movie struck a chord. My question, of course, is whether it still strikes that chord. So, Sarah, I'm curious to hear from you. What was it like to revisit 9 to 5 in 2020? It was really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I expected it to feel very dated. And besides the you know clothes and hairstyles, it felt like it could have been released today. I think it tapped into... Um, issues that are still happening in a lot of places in a very cartoony way. Um, but, you know, his harassment looked lightweight compared to some of the things we've been seeing 
in the news lately. I've been reading uh, Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill and just the complicated, treacherous harassment of women that happen on high levels like that are so terrifying. Um, but I love how this movie still really gets at the diversity of terrible experiences women can have in the workplace. I really feel like it covered the bases. And one of the things that made that work is having so many women in the movie, that it wasn't just one woman's story, that it was the story of multiple women, um, whether it was Dora Lee being outrightly sexually harassed or Violet being passed over or Judy just trying to make things work and being humiliated when she makes mistakes or Maria getting fired for asking, you know, being transparent about salary. Um, I thought it was able to really uh, get at a lot of the different elements of being a woman in the workplace that felt really relevant in ways I which it didn't. Adam, how did it land for you in 2020? Did it feel like it still had something to say? Yeah, I mean, it's still very prescient as a movie and was putting its finger on something. And like Sarah, I was fairly depressed by the fact of how um, of how reflective it was of a time then and how reflective of a time it is now and how little has changed in the in-between. Um, <clears throat> I think what's what's been really interesting in watching this movie is to see the ways in which um, this is this is about corporate culture too and I, I think that was a really interesting part of this movie is that you know in the 60s and 70s you start to see these sort of multinational companies really come into play and there is at the center of them this uh, sense of e efficiency at all costs right I mean this is what ultimately the end of the movie is about is that the, the women have figured out a way to make um, the efficiency or the, the productivity of the department increase by 20 percent. And um, and that's by, you know, actually treating people humanely and fairly. Um, <laughs> but the um, but was what's interesting to me is this is about the ways in which women are discriminated and harassed and ultimately traumatized at work in the pursuit of power but profit too i mean i think it's this is a corporate workplace movie as well so this is a this is a movie to talk about the women's experience but it is um what happens when you put women in a corporate environment that cares only about capitalism <laughs> or profit and how having them in a patriarchal and therefore subordinate positions is ultimately going to um, uh, is ultimately going to grind them up into dust. And, and so I was interested in not only in, in the, the ways in which this is talking about gender experience, but also sort of capitalism and corporate experience. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I echo that. I mean, in some ways, the, the gender experience in this film, the experience of patriarchy and the way in which it oppresses these women felt, of course, incredibly relevant and incredibly prescient. And and I echo this sense that like it felt so much more relevant than I wanted it to feel. And I also felt like that the the kind of workplace dynamics, the labor dynamics in this film, I mean, what it, what it does is it sort of folds the women's experience of, of work on top of kind of almost labor movements and kind of white collar labor movements and, and, um, and employee rights movements 
that 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 part of it felt more antiquated to me. I think because of the decline of unions and the decline mm. of the way that we speak about labor in this country. And so I would find myself very easily imagining someone remaking nine to five as a, as, as a kind of workplace screwball comedy about, um, about women in the workplace in 2020. But what felt the most dated part of it to me was trying to imagine someone making a screwball comedy in 2020 that was about unionization in a white collar workplace. <laughs> right. Because yeah. that is yeah. because of the way that that movement has so declined and we so rarely think about collective rights in the same way, especially in white collar contexts. So, yeah, I mean, but the, but the, 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 the gender stuff I think is where this movie lives the most and where, and why we're still talking about it. And I, I think that's where we um, particularly need to zoom in. I mean, I, I think for me, the opening of this film, the first 20 minutes of it uh, is in incredibly effective it paints yeah. a, a very stark and kind of you know kind of office spacey portrait of what these women are dealing with in the workplace and how dehumanizing it is and then this film literally smokes a joint right like it literally <laughs> smokes a joint and and it and it yeah. explodes into this like weird fantasy revenge sequence and the movie gets darker and twistier from there. And I'm curious to hear, I mean, especially from you, Sarah, like how, how the, the unfolding of this film worked for you. Like, what is it to watch? What do you make of those fantasy sequences? What do you make of like the dark twisty turns this thing takes as it goes along? I mean, I'm a little afraid of upsetting you too, but I think uh, those fantasy sequences are not that unlike the imaginative life of women. <laughs> Right. They, they yeah, felt course. less weird to me than I think it did to you, because I think when people don't have power, what they do still have is imagination. And so if you aren't able, uh, you know, to yell at your boss in front of, you know, the, a meeting that you could certainly ha imagine small woodland creatures coming to your aid or, you know, whatever um, of the choice of the fantasies you want to pursue. But I think with female rage, which has been the topic of uh, so much media press. You know, we're recording this just a few days after Elizabeth Warren got a lot of press for, um, you know, taking out Michael Bloomberg and just bodying him. Right. And uh, I, I know a lot of women um, just felt so cathartic watching that and having a woman in a place um, of power who can just say what she actually thought. Or I think a lot of the experience of being in the workplace as a woman is keeping your mouth shut or um, getting what you want by getting at it in a sideways manner of flirting your way or cajoling your way. And so the idea that these women sublimate all that rage and anger into this rich fantasy life uh, really resonated with me and made a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think those fantasies, each one of them has their own twist, right? They each have their own... like. One is a full inversion. The Dolly Parton version is the full inversion of the power dynamic by which the other person can harass with impunity. Right. And and which is a very real fan. It's like which is I it's not so much that I want to harass, which is I want I want the security to feel like I can do whatever the hell I want to do, which is what it feels like, uh, you know, Mr. Hart can do in the position that he's in shielded, not just by patriarchy, but by the company itself. Um, and Jane Fonda's vision is like is is a 
um, as a witch hunt in many ways, right? It's a it's a group of people who are sort of like screaming and trying to sort of run down this monster. And then in the Lily Tomlin version, right? It's um, it's a fairy tale, and and the fairy tale is you slay some whatever monster or dragon that's in front of you via um, by being virtuous. And I I appreciated how each of them had a slightly different turn to them, but but your point is the same, which is that. Um, that fantasy aggression is actually a really important um, is important for the moral imagination, right? Which is to say, like, I'd like to overturn this. I don't have the power or the agency in order to do this in the way that I want. Um, but for me to continue in this unsafe place, I'm going to need to have and still keep some identity or personality. I'm going to need to have some sort of fantasy life that like pulls me through it um that allows me to not be fully subsumed by the system or is going to prevent me from being the Roz character who's a really interesting character and I want to yeah. hear what you think about her right which is she works really she she spies on all of the rest of the women on behalf of Mr. Hart and she is in, she's a she may be among the more complicated figures in the whole movie um, because of the ways in which the the particular office culture has pressed her into seeking power at the expense of other women in the office. Absolutely. I love that character. I love the contrast between her and I think it's Margaret or Peggy who just drinks the day away and is kind of cheering yeah. them on but isn't engaging. Uh, of two really different ways to cope. Like one is just to disengage, to numb out, and the other is to work within the system so that you're close to the boss, so you get whatever power there is to give, even if it's just crumbs. But the cost of that for her is then being totally alienated from the other women at work. Um, and, and, but you see that in a different way in the way Dora Lee is alienated at first before the truth comes out, um, because there's not even in a workplace uh, full of women, that type of allyship is not necessarily the first move people make in an oppressive system, right? Because you have to survive. And so it's easy for them to judge Roz or to judge Dora Lee um, and to create enemies within because it's um, better probably for the powers that be that they be fighting with each other rather than focusing all their energy on overcoming the bad guy, basically. But that I think there is that um, temptation uh, among women in workplaces to then sort of gang up on each other in different ways rather than being organized and focused on what the actual problem is. So here's a, a, another question is, did you think that this movie was funny? I mean, so I I was reading a little bit about the about the um, the production of the movie and initially Jane Fonda, whose production company created it, um, wanted to, uh, wanted to make this like a workplace drama where they would really sort of like begin to get into the, the, the real nitty gritty about workplace discrimination, uh, for women and became convinced pretty early that a, no one would make it and B, no one would watch it. And so they had to make it into sort of like the 1930s screwball comedy where you put three women who have different, who are different type of archetypes 
in order to sell this movie and it's and it sold and it was an incredibly popular movie so did did it work as a comedy for you or did you want something more from it oh i thought it was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> i love this movie no i did think it would i didn't need it to be anymore because i think it said what it needed to say um while also being absurd and hilarious and wonderful so it worked for me what about you matt what about you matt I mean, I think for me, part of that hinges on how we read the ending of the film. And, I, 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 and you know, at the risk of, not at the risk of, at the certainty of spoiling everything, I, I, I want us to talk a little bit about kind of the way this film wraps up and whether or not you all think that it, um, that, that it, that it concludes in a, in a kind of hopeful, satisfying manner or in a perverted, dark, twisted manner or in like a tragic manner. I, and I think there's ways to interpret each of those things. I mean, we, because w what we have is that a after everybody goes back to work and Mr. Hart is liberated and back into his office and the, the, the women are back in the office and then the chairman of the board comes down, right? And we get the tour of, all the changes that the women have made in the workplace um, during Mr. Hart's, uh, well, he was tied up for a while. And, <laughs> and, 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 and Adam, as you already pointed out, like these, the, the, these women have made incredible productive changes to the office, the, the changes that they've introduced, the daycare and flex time and job sharing and all of this have, have upped efficiency and everyone's very excited about the upping of efficiency. And the chairman of the board immediately realizes that this is a net gain for everybody, for the company as a whole, uh, and, and gives it the stamp of approval. And in some ways, the women sort of win the day. Mr. Hart gets shipped off to, I don't know, Timbuktu somewhere. And Brazil. Brazil, okay. Yes. Uh, and and, and the, the, the movie is over. And I feel, and I felt kind of multiple feelings at the same time here. One was this kind of base vindication that I was glad to see these ideas recognized as good, helpful ideas. On the other hand, there's this, there's this undercurrent of why do we have to have the most powerful man in the company come down and give it the stamp of approval? And does that undercut the, what the rest of the film is trying to do? Does it intentionally do it? Is it going for, the kind of the dark tragic ending here what's how did you all live with the tension of that those last 15 minutes or so i mean they're still in the world right, right? They, they, <laughs> they don't get to create their own society but they have control over this little pocket of the world this little section of an office and a larger corporation um, and so to me it felt very victorious, but also based in reality. You know, they don't take over the whole company. They don't start, I don't know, making tampons that are the best tampons in the world or what, you know, they're, it's, uh, it's still within this masculine environment, but they are going to do their darndest to create a culture that helps everyone to flourish. Uh, within that. I love when Maria comes back and she's worked out the job share situation with somebody else who has childcare needs. And um, so for me, it was satisfying, but also realistic. I mean, we live in the world and the world is still um, a patriarchal world. And I think even, 
know, we've talked about corporate culture, but our churches are very corporate in their own ways and their own structures of power. And I think um, it's just helpful to remember that we don't get spirited away somewhere, that we have to live here while we live here and do what we can within the structures that we've been given. Yeah, I thought that 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 the chairman of the board was an interesting character to bring in at the very end, because in some ways he he shares the culture with Mr. Hart and is able to give a rationale for each of the changes that were made um, by the three women from his own background. He'd be like, oh, yeah, we did that in the military. Oh, yeah, this is a this is a value. Oh, you're bringing back something that was important in the corporate environment years ago. And can't see that these um, that the changes that were made were made for the flourishing of most of the people in the office as they continue to try and live a life in the world that you're speaking of, Sarah. I mean, and that to me was maybe one of the more subtle but smart little commentaries, which is he's he's seeing the world only through his particular experience. And so he can't see that efficiency or productivity would increase by this much without some, without being born either from a corporate or from a military environment. The idea that that these women have thought intentionally about their experience as a way to think about management and care and um, being a good boss uh, is absolutely foreign to him and wouldn't make any sense. And I thought that that was uh, well wrought. So uh, there's a lot of other things I want to talk about. What do you think makes a good boss, though? Each of you have been in supervision of some sort. And but I think this is this is a movie about bosses. In many ways, it is the precursor to horrible bosses one and two, <laughs> um, where it is a group of people who have to work under people who are terrible and are trying to figure out how to do that. But it it got me thinking like being a boss is really hard. It's I don't mm-hmm. know, I, it's. And I, I guess that's, that's sometimes a silly thing to say because most people would value the, the power to, to make decisions on behalf of other people. That said, if you care about other people in any way, it can be pretty difficult. What, what to you makes a good boss? I think someone who is uh, self-confident and differentiated. So I think when people are insecure, it can lead to a lot of this sort of undermining behavior. But if someone is secure in themselves and able to identify and name their feelings and not blame other people for their feelings. <laughs> uh, that goes a long way. And so, and people who are secure, I think are often willing to share power and to listen and to um, share the stage and to be open to ideas from any sector of the organization. Uh, so people who aren't, um, yeah, people who are secure, who aren't trying to hold on to power for power's sake, but who keep the mission in mind, people who have boundaries so who can say no. I've been in workplaces uh, with people who said yes to everyone, and that became problematic, especially when those yeses were conflicting. Um, So I think it's a balance between being really confident and clear, but being able to be open and listen to other people. What about you, Matt? I think this movie gets it. Some, some really interesting thing there, and it is that tension between how Mr. Hart operates and how the chairman of the board operates. We want to say that Mr. Hart's 
problem is that he can't see these women in his workplace as as fully fledged people. He sees them as cogs and um, and dehumanizes them. But at the same time, I think there's something about him that takes all of this incredibly personally. And mm. what the chairman of the board is able to do for good and for ill as but, but the, what the chairman of the board is able to do is actually come in dispassionately and see good ideas as good ideas kind of regardless of the people that they've come from. And I think that names part of the tension for me about being a boss is the yes, wanting deeply to care for and humanize and love the people who are working in that office, but also needing to be able to cease things from some piece of remove that allows me not to take things personally when they are in fact about a broader system. And I think that's the, the trick of like how personal and how removed to stand is, is, is um, part of the tension that, that lives underneath doing effective supervision. Mm -hmm. What about you? Um, so I think the thing that I struggle with is I find that you are, most people are trying to do their job well. And part of my job is to help them do their job well. And in order for them to do their job well, they need some measure of challenge, right? You have to challenge people in order to get the best out of them, but also some measure of support. And the hardest thing for me is in the moment trying to sort of measure what the ratio of challenge and support to give to each person, because it changes from person to person. Like there are some people who respond really well to challenge and say like, hey, I think you can do better than this. Like, let's go back to the drawing board. Um, or there are some people who need a lot of support and giving them that support. Um, and I think like the good teachers and bosses and supervisors in my life have been able to sort of build an instinct to see what's in front of them and say like, okay, I'm going to challenge you right now. Cause this is, this needs to be better. Or, Hey, I'm going to come alongside of you. I'm going to help you sort of work out what's going on here, give you some tools, help you then succeed in what, in the task that you have before you. But I, I don't like, I really struggle with that because I feel like I can get into ruts where if I'm, um, if I'm in a place where I'm too busy or if I don't have enough time to, to help other people and I notice that someone needs support, I start to resent them for needing support when that's just a very human thing to need. It's to help somebody <laughs> need help. And, and I'm like, well, why can't you just be better at this? <laughs> um, and so I, I'm constantly in that mode of trying to figure out how do I be supportive? How do I challenge appropriately? How do I build my own life to make room for those moments where part of my job is to help other people do their job well? Could you all use this movie in 2020? And your, I mean, Adam and your church, Sarah, at the seminary, or if you were serving a parish somewhere, could you imagine using this in ministry? I think that there are, there are places. I actually think that talking like that, that fantasy scene 
can actually get to some pretty important questions of power with respect to how people envision their worlds and what types of imaginations um, are present. It, you know, the James C. Scott wrote this book called uh, Domination and the Arts of Resistance, and he has this long chapter about sort of fantasy aggression as a really important part of the life of those who are operating in subordinate positions and why it's so important for them to retain that um, that particular imagination and why the the um, you can never fully colonize someone's imagination because they can always um, they can always envision the inverse of whatever the situation right now is and how for him that's a really important way to recognize the the sort of formation of a moral imagination and in, in the lives of people and um i think that in, in like in a seminary class or in a class with smart thoughtful critical lay people to talk about how power works not just um individually but systematically um or systemically would it, this could get at some of that and I think I think women, the women I know, let's say perimenopausal women in the mainline church, are uh, <laughs> really struggling with a lot of anger right now about society, about mm. uh, the church, about men we thought we trusted, and finding out that they weren't trustworthy, um, and not knowing what ground we stand on, not knowing what rights or freedoms are going to be removed from us, worrying about our children. Um, worrying about the workplace. So I think this movie would be, I could imagine using it in a women's retreat and as a sort of a kickoff to talk about what does it mean to be so angry and to mm -hmm. not have the power to fix things? And what does it mean? What are healthy ways that it comes out in the movie and what are unhealthy yeah. ways? Um, obviously, we are not I do not believe Jesus is calling us to string up men by complicated pulley mechanisms. Um, I don't see that in the text anywhere. Uh, but what, so if, so if that's not an option for us, uh, what options do we have? What is a faithful, holy way to deal with that anger? That sounds amazing. That'd be really, really valuable. Uh, can, can I ask one more thing? No. Do you, no. <laughs> That's your show, buddy, man. Uh, Ask a question. You're not you're not the boss of me, Matt. Okay. <laughs> I just um, said it's your show. <laughs> um, what do you all think about Dolly Parton in this debut? Can we just talk about Dolly Parton for a second? She's the best. My favorite. I wrote down my favorite line of hers. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm developing a draw. I don't know if you heard that. Uh, <laughs> I've been chased by swifter men than you, and I ain't been caught yet. <laughs> just love that that she um. She just portrays this woman for whom this sort of behavior is just a given because of the way she looks and the time in which she lives. And so she has a whole arsenal of tools to survive and to um, be able to live. She knows how to handle him. He doesn't scare her. Uh, when I think of his behavior, I think it would really freak me out. But she has been dealing with it for so long that she um, is confident in her ability to escape him. I love her. I, I I think it's interesting that she's the one with the the only male romantic relationship that doesn't seem complicated, right? Yeah. Like, just seems like she's got a husband that she loves and is faithful to. 
and is engaged in some light kidnapping, but for the most part <laughs> goes home goes home to a, a fairly ha- happy house. I mean, I I I thought that that choice was pretty interesting. What about you, Matt? <laughs> I mean, I, I am dramatically underversed in Dolly Parton lore. Like, it's kind of a hole in my pop culture fluency, uh, which I'm, I'm trying to uh, remedy. But I, I was reading through, I was trying to find, like, old contemporary reviews of this film. I wanted to get a sense of how it felt to critics and fans when it first came out. And I was internet was not being super helpful on this, but I did find Roger Ebert's original review of this movie um, in which he is just straight up in love with Dolly Parton. And Aww. it's uh, I'm going to read you some of this because it's, it's, it's just really interesting to think about her debut in, in this moment in time. I mean, we haven't talked at all about the personas of these three actresses and who Jane Fonda was in 1980 is coming off of all of yeah. her really high profile anti-Vietnam War protests and being kind of, in some ways, a kind of mainstream cultural pariah. Uh, Lily Tomlin, kind of the up and coming comic coming off of Laugh-In. Um, and, uh, and then Dolly, who was a country music superstar uh, making her big screen debut. And Roger Ebert writes, what I enjoyed most, as you have already guessed, was Dolly Parton. Is she an actress? <laughs> Yes, definitely, I'd say, although I am not at all sure how wide a range of roles she might be able to play. What is involved here is probably something other than, quote, acting. It has to do with what Bernard Shaw called the life force, that dynamo of energy that some people seem to possess so bountifully. Dolly Parton on the screen simply seems to be having a great time, ready to sweep everyone else up in her enthusiasm, her concern, her energy. It's some show. That's wonderful. That's amazing. So, I mean, Dolly Parton, what's interesting is that Dolly Parton quite famously has a husband that no one ever sees. Yeah. Um, he is incredibly shy, does not show up to anything um, and won't go to like her concerts, won't get, like any of the award shows that she attends. He's uninterested in this. But from, you know, all accounts is a faithful husband who loves her and supports her in all things. Um, so it's interesting to see sort of like here's Dolly in this movie that's trying to overturn relationship or like gender norms. And she herself has a sort of atypical gendered relationship. I mean, where she herself is the, is the one out in front seeking attention and her husband seems to have no interest in that or taking any credit for anything that she ever does. Um, I have a, I have a theory about why Dolly Parton is, um, is among the one of the more important musical voices of the 20th century. Um, so she writes Jolene. You're all familiar with Jolene? Yeah. Jolene is a heartbreaking song about Do- where Dolly is begging another woman not to steal her boyfriend, husband. It's unclear. Um, and in as she does that, um, there's just this like very sad song. Um, and there are all sorts of videos of. Um, of live performances of this that you should check out on YouTube that are amazing, but it's been covered like a million times. Um, I was, I fell down a Jolene hole one day on YouTube where I was just watching Jolene over and over again, done by different people. And there's like a very interesting Miley Cyrus version Mm -hmm. of Jolene. That's totally worth watching because she does a, she does a careful rendition of it. She's actually quite accomplished at it and does, and does it quite well, except there's that, um, that moment, where in the song where Dolly says he talks about you in his sleep, it's this really, really 
tragic line of like full pathos. And Miley Cyrus starts smiling during it. And you're like, oh, she doesn't get it. Like she doesn't understand the song. And then there's this incredible version of Jolene sung by Alison Krauss, which is, it's perfect. It's like perfect in the Alison Krauss way of being perfect. And you watch it and you think, man, Alison Krauss is amazing. And you're hearing her voice and it's just like so pure. And you think, Alison Krauss has never been second best at anything in her life. Right, right, right. (laughs) She's beautiful. She sings like an angel. Like she doesn't, but it's not, you're not, Alison Krauss is Jolene. Like, and then you, then there's this incredible Dolly Parton performance where she's singing and her voice like cracks at this moment where she, she says, please don't take my man. And her like, and you can hear in her voice, this like deep, sadness and anxiety and then it was there that i would realize like dolly parton is like in the book she understands like she understands it all this is a person of like true wisdom a prophet that we should all listen to because i and so it was amazing to see her on screen in part because i think she just she brings something pure to the to the screen but just to the to the world and life that we live in. Absolutely. I've really been enjoying uh, Dolly Parton's America, the podcast that's come out recently that looks at her, but also looks broadly on her cultural influences. And it's definitely, definitely worth a listen um, because it gets at at that and just how um, connected, really diverse segments of America feel to her Hmm. uh, and how careful she is Politically, like her songs are so empowering for the working person, for women. But then in terms of candidates and that sort of thing, she's tried to stay neutral. And in fact, when uh, Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin presented at the Oscars maybe two years ago, uh, they did a whole bit about Trump. And uh, Dolly Parton was so uncomfortable, she ended up changing the tone of it by making a boob joke which she talks about being her sort of go-to way of breaking <laughs> tension. Uh, but it was really interesting to hear her navigating what it means to be her today in 2020. Mm. And it, it's definitely, definitely worth a listen. I think that's a good place to move on. But before we do, we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. I said this last time, but I'm going to plug my own stuff again. I have a new article, Matt. It's about smoke. It's about a barbecue that I went to. Um, Initial drafts, you showed up in it when we went to go. (laughs) Because I went to a a kosher barbecue about three weeks before you and I went and sat in Franklin's for uh, about seven and a half hours to get barbecue. But um, I commend this article to you. Go and read it. Tell me what you think. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Yeah, we were, uh, I, I was in line at a Texas barbecue cathedral a couple of days ago, and they had uh, Louis Miller's in, uh, in, in Taylor, Texas, and they had all of the uh, like old reviews and writing about the place that were up on the wall while you stood in line. And I, I sent Adam a excerpt from an article that they had up there because all the language about going there was entirely sacramental. 
and including this, <laughs> this 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 amazing line at the end where they talk about how yeah there's there of course you get the brisket and of course you get like the beef rib but you know you could also get pulled pork uh and or you could you could also get the baby back ribs and it says you know both are excellent but it's sort of like showing up for sunday services at the catholic church and getting a baptist revival and i thought that was a pretty good piece <laughs> of barbecue theology it's better than mine <laughs> All right, Adam and Sarah, let's talk about preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the text for the second Sunday of Lent, March 8th. We have John and Nicodemus. We have God's promise to Abraham. We have Psalm 121. And we have Paul's discussion of Abraham in Romans 4. Sarah, as you have looked through these texts, what has stood out to you? What has been inspiring to you as you think about 9 to 5? Yeah, I'd love to talk about Romans 4 uh, for a bit. I, first of all, because I have the sense of humor of a 12-year-old boy, I think it's hilarious that all the redacted passages are about circumcision, and that just feels <laughs> kind of right on for our subject uh, today. Um, just really don't like us discussing that in church, apparently. Well, yes, that is an unpleasant piece of history. Uh, but I think a lot of this movie struggles with, like, these women are struggling with what it, how can they get right? in the workplace. Mm -hmm. What does righteousness look for them? And they try all these different things. We've already talked about Roz, who tries getting really close to power and seeing if that will help her um, so she can, you know, be her fullest self. And that doesn't seem to work for her. Uh, Margaret just pieces out with her alcohol and checking out. But then at the end of the movie, we see that she's gotten sober and is able to live into her full self. Um, Violet does her you know, just works so hard at being excellent and does everything right and is smart and creative and dresses to the nines and that doesn't work. Uh, Dora Lee is sweet and accommodating and that doesn't work. You know, Violet's just trying to figure stuff out in this new reality where her husband has left her and they're each struggling in their own way um, to be seen and to be right with the world and right in this workplace and none of it works because the system itself is broken. And so I think there's something there about, um, you know, no matter what we do, no matter how right our actions are, we can't get righteous before God because the world is so broken. Even our best attempts at making sacrifices or doing right mm -hmm. are always going to be corrupt. And so we need that intervention. We need Jesus to come and to rescue us from our own screwed upness. Um, and I think this, this passage gets at some of that. Like you could go there that, you know, Adam or Abraham does everything God tells him to do, but it wasn't his behavior that rescues him. It's his faithfulness. It's God's action. And so I think there's something there about um, these women. There's nothing they could do. There was no behavior they could gauge, engage in to make their situation fully right that it has to be ultimately for each of us, God's intervention in our lives to make that happen. <laughs> I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's also part of why I struggle a little bit with the ending of the movie, um, because it feels like the, mm -hmm. the chairman of the board comes down and the movie proclaims that these women have earned their righteousness. Right. And, and th that's why I think there's a, I, I want to give the movie credit for that being sort of a, dark twist of the knife instead of a happy ending because I, I i think the happy ending to me feels like no these these this workplace deserves 
basic humanitarian policies because these people are humans, not because of anything that they have connived to earn for themselves. Uh, and so I think about um, the my, my favorite scene in this film far and away is Jane Fonda versus the photocopier, which is just <laughs> an inc- slightly dated, but an incredibly brilliant piece of physical comedy. And just like this, this weird old steampunk copier that just will not be contained. <laughs> and she cannot, and it's such a beautiful visualization of her attempts to try to, as you were pointing out, to just try to like make it and cut it in this place. And, and, and she cannot, but she should not have to in order to work in a place that recognizes her basic decency. And that that's, I think, where the like, the, the kind of Pauline faith and grace stuff kicks in for me a little bit too. Yeah. It's not a Christian movie. It's not based no. in that reality. Sure. So it doesn't line up. Yeah. Well, but I, I, there are these little glimpses and I think that that's in listening to uh, you talk, Sarah, I, my favorite scene of the movie is when Lily Tomlin's talking to her son. Yeah. It's, it's really tender. I mean, it's just this incredibly tender moment of a mother who seems sort of fed up and she's sharing with her son very honestly about her life. And it it's the only, we get very little opportunity to see any of them as parents. And, but here's a, a moment where you get the sense that like, not only is she trying to bring up her son in a world where hopefully her son will care about the human decency of the people around him but also that he cares about her like he really you get the sense that he really loves her and so even though they're failing to try and build this thing there are these there's this little moment this little spark um you know he's spark that's the pun because he gives her a joint right like and uh to like to 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 help just take the edge off of how hard the world is and there's a sort of this is a sort of little pastoral moment that he gives to his mom in the midst of it all to say, like, I love you, even though this system continues to grind you down. And I think that that's an important part of the sort of the ideas of of righteousness and action in a world where we aren't going to be made righteous and we do need Christ. But in order to try and seek some measure of conversion or some measure of righteousness, um, that reflects God's righteousness. We need the help of other people. Like we need, we need the comfort of of love and care of other people and of communities. And and I was, I was, I found actually found that moment quite compelling. Especially like she gets the garage door working. Like it all just sort of worked in the moment. It's a really lovely little scene. It's well written. It's well written. It's well directed. And it's a nice bit of foreshadowing because now we know that Lily Tomlin's character knows how to install. What about you, Matt? Is there any of these texts that stand out to you as you look at the the movie and the lectionary? Well, I have a little bit of a hobby horse related to Psalm 121, uh, which we use all the time in worship. This, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Uh, In fact, when, when I served in Virginia and the Blue Ridge Mountains, we that was our default uh, psalm for funerals and memorial services. And I, I think for four years, in probably 25 or 30 funerals, I don't think I ever used a call to worship that was not Psalm 121. Uh, and yet, 
I'm not sure that Psalm says what we think it says. Uh, <laughs> the, the assumption is I lift my eyes to the hills and, and God is coming from there. The God who made heaven and earth. And in the Blue Ridge Mountains, that feels very appropriate. I look around, I see the hills, God is surrounding me. Thanks be to God. But, but I'm not sure that that's how Israel is using this psalm. I, 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 I am somewhat convinced that this psalm is from the perspective of someone who is, is surrounded by military opposition on all sides. Yeah. By, by armies who have mm -hmm. the high ground. And yeah. I, I lift my eyes to the hills. This means, oh crap! <laughs> um, where, does, where does my help come from? It ain't coming from the hills because they've got me pinned in. My only help comes from God, who made these hills. And the only right. the, the problem these armies have is that they're standing on top of hills that my God made, and that's not going to go well for them, eventually. And, and I think there's something in this psalm about reminding us to be careful of the high places in which we put our trust. Uh, and which I think relates to how we think about nine to five. And, and it relates to how we think about, uh, as, as Sarah, especially you've already talked about, the, the, the people in positions of power and authority, the high places, which may not be physical hills, but may be um, positions of institutional leadership in which we are very, very quick to put our trust and our faith, but that's a bait and switch. Um, I, 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 yeah. lift my high, I lift my eyes to the boardroom. Where does my help come from? Uh, from God who made the building on, who made the land on which that building stands. Uh, and and I, I just, I think that Psalm, while I still love using it pastorally in those in those pastoral moments, I think it needs a little bit of complexification for our modern times and has actually quite a bit of quite a bit to say. Right. I was mm -hmm. thinking about that when you were talking, uh, relating to what I was talking about earlier about female rage and fear and the sense like there's not a politician who's going to save us. There's mm -hmm. not a political structure that's going to save us. There's not a movie star who's going to save us. There's not an organized movement that's going to save us. Only God ultimately can save us. And not that we're powerless, but that I think um, the psalm speaks in a new way mm -hmm. as we start to lose trust in the institutions that we thought were protecting us. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's especially helpful in the wake of 2016, where at least in the progressive churches that I ran with, there was a very sure sense that democracy would save us. That 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 this thing that we believed in, we sort of in some ways made our God and um, and then the next day after that election, everyone that I talked to was like felt not just sad, but anger and betrayal and that that the system had failed. And I think Paul's point and. And uh, this is Niebuhr's point largely, which is systems are designed to fail. They all have a sort of demon at the at the center of them that won't ultimately work absent God, um, that they will ultimately break down and um, into some sort of moral rot. Um, and thus all the more reason to, to need God's help. That said, this is where I think the Abraham passage is really important, right? Because God gives this promise to Abraham and then Abraham has to live independent 
of this promise for like the next 85 years or something crazy. All right, so he gets this promise of this new nation, and this new nation is ultimately going to need a, an heir, uh, some measure of progeny, and um, and then Abraham waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and waits, um, and how that waiting is a consistent test of his faith, but that waiting of that time, that time between the the, the institution of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, is always an opportunity to think about renewing our mission which is because we have this promise and we believe the one who's promised it to be trustworthy, we assume that it's going to be fulfilled, then our work for the future has to calibrate according to the fulfillment of the promise, which is to say our mission is to those places where the promise has not yet been fulfilled. And so if you see the sort of types of discrimination and the types of indignity that women have to engage in in the workplace. It is part of Christian mission to change it, in part because God has promised a world where that is not the case. And so it doesn't, that may not, for some sections of the church, you know, that feels political or that feels as if um, that's outside the scope of what it means to like serve Christ. But I think Part of part of reckoning with the promises of God is reckoning with where they haven't been fulfilled. And that, I think, is a generator and an engine of change and mission. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us. And I think it wraps it up for a really good discussion of this film. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us yeah, and you. lend your wisdom and your insight. And we will let you go and uh, do the more important things you have to do with the rest of your day. Well, thank you so much. And uh, since we're married, I'll see you later at our kids' baseball practice. That sounds good. All right. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks. And I'll see you good. later too, Sarah, eventually. All right. Bye, friend. Bye. Now it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So I, I considered talking about any one of a number of different dumb pop culture things, which would be my usual uh, <laughs> usual pattern for this segment. But I thought I'd pull an atom and pull out something smart and intelligent instead. I find myself, now that we are in the season of Lent by the time this episode drops, thinking a lot about how we mark the season and how we mark time. And one of the constant companions that I have begun to have as I think about theologies of season and time is uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel and his writing on Sabbath. Uh, obviously, mm, Heschel so is good. one of the um, the preeminent Jewish theologian of the 20th century, uh, and he talks about Judaism as a, a religion unique for it, this, its, its sacrality of time and the way that the Sabbath becomes the centerpiece of Jewish belief because it is not about marking a sacred place, but rather a sacred, a sacred, a sacred day, a sacred time, a sacred moment, uh, which is contrary to the logic of stuff and places and things that so underscores most other religious thought and clearly most contemporary thought. Lent, of course, is also a discipline of time. It's 40 days, mm -hmm. the 40 days in the wilderness, the, the way in which we pull out this chunk of time and say that this time is different. And I think there's resonance for us in thinking about 
Lent through the lens of thinking of, of reading how Heschel thinks about Sabbath. Uh, and I want to read a little bit to you from his mm. book of from his book, The Sabbath, which has become one of my constant companions. He says that to set apart one day a week for freedom, a day on which we would not use the instruments which have been so easily turned into weapons of destruction, a day for being with ourselves, a day of detachment from the vulgar, of independence of external obligations, a day on which we stop worshiping the idols of technical civilization, a day on which we use no money, a day of armistice and the economic struggle with our fellow men and the forces of nature. Is there any institution that holds out a greater hope for man's progress than the Sabbath? Hmm. Of course, I wish that Heschel would write with more gender inclusive language, but suspend that for a moment. The seventh day is the armistice in man's cruel struggle for existence. A truce in all conflicts, personal and social. Peace between man and man, man and nature, peace within man, a day on which handling money is considered a desecration, on which man avows his independence of that which is the world's chief idol. The seventh day is the exodus from tension, the liberation of man from his own muddiness, the installation of man as a sovereign in the world of time. In the tempestuous ocean of time and toil, there are islands of stillness where man may enter a harbor and reclaim his dignity. The island is the seventh day, the Sabbath, a day of detachment from things, instruments, and practical affairs, as well as of attachment to the spirit. Amen. That's what I've got. That's so good. Yeah. What do you got, Adam? Um, I love that. First off, I think, and that book is so rich and deep and rewards rereading it, yes um, absolutely and the, the edition i have includes an introduction by his daughter susanna which is just a long-form description of what it was like to grow up on the sabbath in her parents apartment in new york city and just the introduction alone is worth four times the cost of admission so if okay. you do not have a copy of this uh, please go find it it is not a long read neither the introduction nor the book itself but it is yeah. it is foundational and I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and it's it's conceptions of time in particular I find really helpful um, and have inspired me and taught me a lot. Um, uh, yeah, incredible. Um, so I, I want to talk about a book I'm reading right now um, that I don't know if I can recommend to people, but it is um, it is wholly unique and fascinating and very... Uh, novel. It's called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It's by Marlon James. It's gotten some uh, a fair about a fair bit of press in part because um, it is pretty well critically acclaimed. Um, though, as sometimes happens when critics are interested in something and it starts to hit a popular audience, the popular audience is perhaps not ready for this type of book. Um, it is a fantasy journey novel set in a sort of African cosmology. It is incredibly brutal and, uh, and very hard to understand and full of a sort of stream of consciousness um, as it follows this one particular character tracker as he goes and tries to find a boy. 
but the first sentence of the entire novel, this is not a spoiler, is the boy is dead. And then the rest of the novel is about that, um, about Tracker trying to find him more or less, but it's about a lot of different things. Um, part of the reason why I'm sort of fascinated by this book is number one, it is, it's a very slow read type of book. It actually won't let you read fast, which with respect to fantasy novels is a strange thing. It, um, most of them encourage a sort of like rapid reading. This in some ways inhibits it. It, it has a sort of Cormac McCarthy style where he's going to slow down your pace intentionally. Um, in many ways, it reminds me of Blood Meridian, if you've ever read that book, um, with with its pacing. Um, but I think more than that, it is told in a sort of oral style where Tracker is recounting to some sort of nameless inquisitor uh, the story of this boy and their tracking of him. And in doing so, it feels like I'm reading a modern day version of like the Enuma Elish or the or Gilgamesh or something. It I I, I can't quite put my finger on how it does this, but it has the feel of all of these sort of like very 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 ancient like first oldest writing that we have of humans um in ways it tells stories in the ways that it it has just a different value system it it's a very it's a very very strange book and i i don't think i could recommend it to anyone as their sort of like regular beach reading as the weather warms up but if you have been um if you've had that moment in your life where you were reading ancient manuscripts if you were reading ovid's metamorphoses or something like that or gilgamesh the gilgamesh epic or any of the sort of like very ancient tales um especially the heroic tradition tales if any of those are interesting to you this book has something new to say about them i'm not exactly sure what it is but it more than any other book I've read, more than any other fantasy book I've read, is um, is akin. It has a heart that is similar to those ancient storytellers who sat around and told a tale about Tiamat, or you know, um, uh, and I think it's trying to be sold as like the next Game of Thrones or the next. Um, I don't know, important fantasy but work. It's not that. It's really not that. I don't think anyone should go into it thinking that they're going to read that or like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's not that at all. It belongs to a different set of sources. And I'm very intrigued by it. And I can only read like four pages a day and it's 600 pages. So I'll be reading this until like the next couple of years. But I'm deeply intrigued by it. And I would commend it to you if that's your thing. So in six months, will you come back and tell us how it went? I will. I mean, it honestly, it feels like you're getting bitten every time you read it. Hmm. It's not a, it's not an easy thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I will tell you whether or not it, like, the scars that were built from being bitten were worth it. Yeah, fair enough. Good. Well, thank you for sharing. I'm looking forward to looking that up. That about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. 
Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Butch Collars. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.